Partika would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of this land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and this season, we're deep diving on the environment. Today, I'm joined by Robin Shaw, ecologist and conservation geneticist. She stopped by to chat about the power of DNA in protecting our native species. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thank you. It's nice to be here. What do you actually do? So I'm an ecologist and a conservation geneticist. Is that something you've always wanted to do? Uh, I don't think I knew what it was until I started doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I guess as an ecologist, I'm interested in understanding animal populations and things about animals' life history. So that's you know mating systems, reproduction, how many babies do animals have, all these sorts of really detailed species level questions. Um, and then as a conservation geneticist, uh, I'm using tools like genetics to kind of understand the broader picture and help manage those populations. So yeah, conservation is all about kind of managing animal populations so that we can protect them into the future. That's obviously something like a speciality you get to mm. after many years of studying. Yeah. Thinking kind of back on maybe being a kid, was science always something that you aspired to do? I don't know about science in itself. I think that, I mean, that was what I was doing, but I just was really interested in nature and in animals and plants. And, you know, whenever we went camping and things like that, I'd be looking at the birds and picking up shells. And yeah, I think I've just always had a real curiosity about nature and the environment. Totally. Yeah. Who were you before you found this pathway? Was kind of, was it the first degree that you started? So like maybe what were you doing before that or the job that got you through study? Who were you before you were Robin, conservation, (laughs) geneticist, all those things? So I guess it probably wasn't until uni that I, yeah, kind of found found this path but before that I was always watching kind of David Attenborough documentaries and reading books about zoologists and I think I wanted to be a a zookeeper so Mm. I was just the kid at every zoo who would spend hours staring at like a marmoset just (laughs) scratching its eye or something being like wow (laughs) nature's amazing (laughs) Um, but then I guess through uni I did random jobs so many random jobs like after school care. I think um, at one point I was one of the elves at that Santa photography, <laughs> like David yeah, Jones or something. Yeah. So yeah, lots of random jobs, but always kind of with the mind that I would go to uni and do something with animals. Did the rest of your family go to university? Um, no. So my dad went to uni to study librarianship. That's cool. <laughs> which I think was uh, kind of a path that let him study archaeology as well, which is what he was really interested in. Um, but then he had a job already lined up and so ended up kind of switching to that. Um, my mum went to TAFE um, and also has always done a lot of really creative things. So she had a stall at the markets for a number of years and then um, ended up being a small business owner, um, owning a couple of shops. Um, 
and yeah, doing a lot of uh, art and things like that. So yeah, I guess my parents both had very different jobs. Um, my dad ended up in IT and yeah, mum always had that um, gallery gift shop uh, type career. So do you consider yourself a creative person? Did any of that mm, get passed down? Yeah, that's a good question. I think so. I think um, firstly, science is a very creative career path because you're always questioning things and always thinking of creative ways to ask different questions. So yeah, if you're if you're trying to test something or trying to come up with hypotheses, you've really got to think very creatively. So I think in that way, um, a lot of the creativity has come through. But then also, it's surprising just how many scientists are also incredible artists as well. So yeah, a lot of friends that I did my PhD with would also be amazing watercolour painters or, you know, incredible in illustrator design, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think a lot of people really enjoy um, the kind of artistic side of natural history, yeah. drawing their species and yeah, things like that. So yeah, it's very, it's a very creative field, I think. Thinking about working in conservation, mm -hmm. I'm assuming, and do correct me if I'm wrong, there's a lot of field work involved? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'd really like to know what a day in the life of field work is like for someone in your career. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess it depends on where you're doing the field work. Uh, when I was doing my PhD, I worked up in the Kimberley and I was trapping pale field rats, which are a native rodent. Uh, they're declining across the tropics. They're kind of locally abundant, which means that when you're trapping them, you get a lot. Mm. But over the kind of broader landscape scale, they're declining. So mm -hmm. really important to kind of find out why. Um, but yeah, for my PhD, I would get up before the sun rose. So my alarm would usually go off at 3 a.m., <laughs> oh. Which was always nice. I'm not a morning person, so <laughs> that's night time. Yes, that's actually that's just not morning. Time. Exactly. That's night time. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So I'd get up, uh, go have a weird middle of the night breakfast, um, and then get in the car and drive off to one of our sites. Um, my sites were usually between about 20 minutes or 40 minutes drive away, um, but sometimes they were only maybe. 15 kilometres or something like that. It's just that the roads are so rough. Yeah. Um, and then you'd get out, get your trapping kit ready to go and start checking the trap lines. So what you normally do is have these little box metal traps if you're trapping a small mammal um, and you bait them. The kind of universal small mammal bait is peanut butter and rolled oats. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good snack. Yeah, well... You start off when you're when you're an ecologist and you've got these bait balls. You start off thinking that they're delicious and you can't stop thinking about eating peanut butter. After maybe a week of kind of getting the gross, waterlogged, rat-smelling peanut butter yeah, out of yuck. traps, you can't eat peanut butter again for a little <laughs> while. <laughs> so yeah, I think it goes. It comes and it goes. But I can look at peanut butter again now. Thank but God. at the time, no way. <laughs> Do we know why we why do you use peanut butter and oats? Uh, I think just because it's such a delicious snack. <laughs> it smells, it brings the animals in. Um, it's a yeah, a tasty snack that brings them into the trap, which I guess otherwise uh, the trap is kind of a unknown, scary place. So you need something to tempt them in so that you can actually capture them. Mm. Yeah. So 
yeah, it's maybe 4 a.m. by the time I would get to a site. Um, and then for my PhD fieldwork, we would have 100 traps to check uh, spread over about a kilometre. So you're really just kind of walking along, bending down, seeing if there's an animal in the trap, going to the next one, seeing if there's an animal in the trap. And then if you do catch one, it's exciting because you actually get to get some data for your future analysis. Um, and you would put them in a small bag, a little kind of calico bag, and then do whatever you need to do. So take some measurements. Um, for my work, we often take like a little foot measurement um, and then we'll weigh them. And so those sorts of measurements can tell us whether, uh, I guess it's an adult or a juvenile, or it can help us with identifying the animal to species mm. because there's quite a few different species out there and some of them look really similar. So those little details kind of help you narrow down what you've actually caught. Um, then for my work, because I do genetics, we take a little ear clip. So uh, for different species, you take different tissue samples, but for most small mammals, um, you have this little clipper that you take a notch out of their ear, kind of like an ear piercing, I guess. Um, put that in a little tube and sterilise everything. Uh, you might also be doing microchipping. So um, if you're doing, it's called a mark recapture study. So if you want to catch the same animal again and know whether it's that same animal, uh, you might put a little microchip in like you do with a dog or a cat. Um, and then you can scan it and see if you've caught it again. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and after all that, you try and do that as fast as you can because it's obviously quite stressful for the animal. Yeah. Then you let it go on its way uh, and go off and check the next trap. How long does that take? Uh, it depends. Some, some of the sites I trapped at, we'd get one new animal in a morning. Yeah. And so very fast. Yeah. <laughs> some of the sites that I trapped, there'd be 60 new animals every wow. morning. And so every trap would be full. You might have some animals you've caught before, so you can just let them go. Yeah. Uh, but anything new, you have to kind of sit down and take all the equipment out and mm -hmm. start scribing. So that can take a really long time. And you'd find things that you maybe don't expect, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think once I had a blue tongue lizard in one of the traps. <laughs> Did they eat the peanut butter? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was gone. <laughs> yeah. And do you do this field work by yourself or do you go out in a team? Normally you'd go out with someone. So... Uh, a lot of the time there's people that will volunteer which is amazing because it's a huge chunk of time that they're giving up and yeah you get a lot of really passionate people that are really keen to come out and see what you're doing so I've had amazing volunteers come up to the Kimberley and you know spend months and months there so yeah you usually try and go with people you might kind of split up to check more traps but yeah it's better when you're in kind of remote areas and when you're doing things like this where you kind of want a bit of backup and help with certain things yeah we'd usually go out in a bit of a team yeah oh they'd yeah. be long days and if you're did you say in the Kimberley yeah so for my PhD work I did field work up in the Kimberley mm -hmm. yeah. and what were you researching so that was the pale field rat mm -hmm. um and I was looking at how small mammals recover after fire okay yeah so I guess in northern Australia there's a lot of fire it's 
a part of the landscape, but since Europeans have come to Australia, there's been a real shift from the original kind of fire management that the Indigenous people implemented compared to these massive wildfires that now dominate with European settlement. Um, and so there's been a real push to try and do this early dry season fire management, mm -hmm. which means that you're lighting these low intensity fires early in the wet season when everything is still quite wet and damp. And so fires don't kind of blaze out of control and burn down everything. Um, so we were trying to see whether small mammals recover differently from those two different fire types. I see. Yeah. And were so, they? Yeah, we did. We found that um, after the kind of patchy burns, we would have animals surviving after the fire event. Uh, and that means that sites uh, can be kind of repopulated from the animals that are already there. Whereas if you have a really intense thorough burn that wipes out all of the vegetation, there's nothing left. And yeah. so animals have to come from outside of the area to kind of repopulate mm. a site. And that might not matter so much on the scale of what I was looking at, which is, you know, a couple of kilometres. But if you think about the scale of wildfires, which can be massive, if there aren't any survivors in that area, animals have to come from a really, really, really long way to kind of repopulate. Um, and that's why we might be seeing, well, that's one of the many reasons we might be seeing these massive declines. Ah, Is there a lot of research going on within Australia about these kind of population dynamics? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so I guess ecology in general is kind of interested in how animals interact with their landscape um, and the environment. And so those things I was talking about earlier, things like mating systems, reproduction, all of that is really vital to understand because if you understand how the kind of individual level things work, you can figure out how a metapopulation works. Mm. So um, how you can maintain a really healthy population because you know whether um, you know they're likely to be able to respond to events in different ways. So I guess that's where I use genetics um, because genetics can tell us a lot about those kind of uh, individual dynamics that you just can't tell from kind of observing. Jumping in just for a second. I want to point out that Robin actually brought along some DNA she extracted at home. You can see her show us the DNA on our Particle WA Instagram page if you just have a look at our show and tell saved highlight. In the show notes, she's also given us an example of how to do your own DNA extraction. If you're doing genetic studies, you're obviously looking at maybe like the, the DNA structure and how that animal is made up. How does that relate directly into conservation? Mm. So one of the really important things in conservation is to conserve genetic diversity. Um, and one of the reasons we do that is so that there's, um, I guess, the information is there if there's an extreme weather event or something mm. like that. So um, with climate change, uh, we want animals to be able to kind of adapt to a future of uh, extreme weather. And if there's no genetic diversity, we might see all individuals be wiped out because they don't have the building blocks there to be able to adapt. So um, that's another aspect. We can use genetics both to um, monitor what's happening in a population, but we can also use it to kind of help them be more resilient to environmental change, which is really important with 
climate change that we're seeing at the moment. Absolutely. When you tell people about your job and about what you do, is there any kind of misconceptions around the use of genetics and conservation? Because the first thing that pops to my head is like people who uh, maybe don't understand or think you might use like genetic modification on animals. Mm, yep. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the main one for sure. So I think people don't think about genetics so much as a tool. So as I was saying, we can use genetics just for the sake of genetics, so protecting diversity so they're able to adapt. Um, but one of the main ways that genetics is used in wildlife biology is kind of in more of a forensics way. So a lot of the analyses we do are very similar to what happens in a forensic investigation wow. where you're trying to match uh, a suspect to a crime or something like that. Um, the way that we use genetics is much more to understand a population and to understand relatedness and um, how connected populations are so I think that's a massive misconception the idea that we're all growing ears on rats or something like yeah. that which is also a very cool area of biology but yeah quite different. Do you remember the moment of inspiration when you thought yeah I'm going to commit to doing you know more study and keep on going because mm. you've I imagine done just so much research now <laughs> in your life yeah. Do you remember when you thought, yes, I'm willing and ready to kind of commit and do this? Yeah, I think there were probably a couple of points, but I remember, so I did first year uni, um, a Bachelor of Science, and was, I guess, kind of broad, like I did some earth science and uh, more molecular biology, and then also all of the ecology courses as well. Um, and I remember just finding all of them quite interesting and usually gravitating towards the ecology courses but not being quite sure and so then I, I took a gap year after my first year mm. um, and I did a little bit of backpacking as you do um, and I went to Namibia to this kind of wildlife reserve and uh, it was I think it was a lot of fun it was amazing to see all of these animals that have been rescued and you know get to be somewhere totally new yeah um, but at the same time, I think it really woke me up to wanting to do research mm. because I just thought, wow, the impact that you can have when you're actually, you know, understanding how these things work and um, trying to do conservation on a broader scale is so important. So, yeah, I think going out there and getting to actually work with, I guess, practitioners and um, people actually on the ground doing conservation was really, really inspiring. Yeah, so... After that, I went back and I, I really committed to ecology. <laughs> I did a lot of ecology courses and I think it was just kind of following my interests that led me to genetics as well. Like, just found myself taking genetics courses and thinking about how those things can be paired up. Uh, and then after my honours, I took another year off and I worked in a lab for a little while. Ah. Um, and that was great too, but at the end of the day, I thought well, I could just be studying. Like, I could just be doing a PhD right now. <laughs> this is, I know this is what I want to do, so I may as well jump in. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people find that idea of doing so much research and writing so much, like, mm. you know, getting through to your postdoc, that's a lot of writing and a lot of research. Yeah. Was there ever a point where you thought, no, this is too much, I just want to do something a little less, I don't want to say difficult, but a little less on your own and in search of answers, you know, something a little bit more clear cut. Yeah, oh, all the time, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a real challenge, I think. 
yeah, you just, there's so much to find out. There's so much to learn that sometimes it can be overwhelming because you're trying to write your specific paper, but you've read all of this incredible research Mm. and you want it all to be in there. (laughs) And, you know, I often get overwhelmed by the research because, yeah, there's so much to learn. But I think every time I, I kind of have a bit of a break or something, I'm just wanting to get started again. <laughs> it's, yeah, very addictive because while it can be really mentally exhausting, I guess, there's not that many jobs where you just get to spend every day following your interest. Like, yeah, yeah I think we're very lucky to just be able to read papers read research papers every day you know who gets to do that it's incredible or go out to the remote pilbara or something like that and learn about the animals and plants that are there it's a pretty incredible job how how do you feel when your research is going to populations that are generally declining does it make you sad oh of course yeah, yeah. i think um that's one of the the kind of big challenges of this job is just seeing how we're losing biodiversity. We're losing it at such an alarming and drastic rate that I think you've got to sometimes just take a step back and think about what you can do rather than, I don't know, It's you've got to balance that worrying about the bigger picture with you know your specific area and what you can do to change things. So yeah I think in a I mean in the world it's not looking great but in Australia in particular we have the highest rate of mammal extinctions in the world wow. which is pretty awful we've also got I think we're second in the world for um, endemic mammals so mammals found nowhere else wow. we've got the highest level of biodiversity for that so you know we're losing a lot of things that are found nowhere else in the world I think it can be really upsetting to think about to think about that but it's also really inspiring to be surrounded by people who want to change that so yeah there are, are good parts and bad parts and hopefully if we we kind of all keep working on it we can start to see a bit of a difference what are some of the things that could improve in our conservation practices do you think oh, probably funding is the main yeah. one i think more funding is really important um but also just valuing biodiversity you know putting that a higher priority in protecting our biodiversity is really important because i think not many people know a lot about it we have so many crazy unique animals but sometimes they can be quite hard to go out and see Mm. so for example the animals that i'm working on at the moment are found in the pilbara which not too many people have been to Um, they're also often nocturnal uh, and they're also tiny (laughs) so they can be really hard to see and I think if you don't have that connection to what's there it's not uh, doesn't seem as pressing to protect it because you kind of don't know what you're losing so yeah I think that's where some of the um, the really big stories can kind of snap people into into kind of wanting to demand change so things like Australia has lost the first or it's the first record of a mammal or of an extinction happening because of climate change so yeah, yeah we lost the first mammal due to climate change what was anyway, it it was the bramble k melamis so that's a native rodent that was um, the only endemic rodent on the great barrier reef the oh. only endemic mammal on the great barrier reef mm. um, and just because of sea level we've lost it forever wow um 
we've lost a third of the spectacle fi- flying fox population no, because of heat so waves. Nice. So, you know, some it's of so these sad. really big stories, I think, can, can kind of help people see how, how drastic it is um, and hopefully kind of demand change. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current research, your postdoc? Yeah, sure. So um, I moved to Perth to study small mammals in the Pilbara. Um, so we've got at the moment about eight species of small mammals from uh, tiny little planigales, which are the one of the smallest mammals in the world. How little are they? Uh, they're like thumb-sized. <gasps> they're so tiny, maybe like half the size of a house mouse or something wow. like that. They're really small. They're also flattened because they hunt, well, some of the species hunt in the black soil uh, cracking clays. So um, they're these really crazy little species. Um, And then I'm also looking at, I guess, the biggest species would be the northern quoll, which is probably a bit more well-known, distributed across northern Australia, but also really suffering because of a few uh, threatening processes, like cane toads would probably be the most well-known. Okay. Um, but also things like inappropriate fire regimes and feral cats as well. So, uh, yeah, we've got a big range of species. And what we're planning to do is uh, we've got genetic samples from all of them and we're trying to understand how they use the landscape. So that's where the genetics comes in again. We can have a look at um, these samples scattered across the Pilbara to see how genetically similar or different they are and whether that um, kind of corresponds to environmental um, corridors and things like that. So if we can figure out kind of how they're using the landscape to move, maybe, uh, for example, quoll might really rely on kind of uh, complex rocky habitat to move through. And so areas that are connected by complex rocky habitat would be genetically connected as well. Mm. Um, So if we can understand kind of those corridors that they're using, we can start to prioritise the areas that we protect. Um, The other thing that I'm looking at is uh, habitat use. So uh, it's something called species distribution modelling, which is all about finding out what sort of environmental variables are important for uh, why a species is where it is. So things like spinifex, um, soil, so there are sandy specialists, rocky specialists, um, and then also climate can be really important as well. And so if we can start mapping out where we find each species, uh, how they move through the landscape, we can kind of layer all of that up and find where are these really, really key areas that need to be protected. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so if we do that for a bunch of different species i mean at the moment we're doing it on mammals but it would be amazing to have a look at a whole lot of different taxa we can see whether there are kind of areas that overlap and so those would be the really high priority areas because if you invest in protecting that you're going to protect a whole bunch of species um we can do a little bit of mapping and show people where the areas are that they should kind of focus on when they're using conservation strategies We're going to jump across to some questions from the rest of the Particle team. Okay. Uh, and some of these are a little bit silly, so feel <laughs> free to not take them too seriously. Um, <laughs> would you rather work with animals or people? Oh, I really like working with animals, but I have to say sometimes the best part of field work is just the random people you meet. Like 
the people you meet in like some remote field station are just the best. <laughs> you are often brought there by a similar passion, um, but you're from all different places from all over the world or all over Australia. And yeah, I find you just have very different conversations than you would have with someone you see in the office. So yeah, I think a good combination of both. Yeah, that's a, that's a healthy answer. <laughs> it's a bit of a cop-out answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> if you were an Australian native animal, what would you be? Oh, oh that's a really hard one to think for a bit. I think, no, I think um, my mum and my sister and I always say we're galahs. Oh, that's a good one. Because we're a bit kind of like loud and squawky and bumbly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you can tell galahs have a heart of gold. <laughs> I like that one a lot. If you, so thinking about kind of the use of genetics for something like Jurassic Park, <laughs> if you had to, so you have to, mm-hmm. to be clear, you can't say none, uh, <laughs> if you had to bring back an extinct species, what would you bring back? Oh, totally. The uh, Diprotodon. What's the that? The giant wombat. <gasps> oh, that would be awesome. Or like any of the megafauna. Yeah, there's one called, I can't remember what it's actually called, but the demon duck. It's like this massive, incredible <laughs> goose thing <laughs> from Australia. Or um, the giant goanna. Any of those megafauna oh. are just yeah, they would blow my mind. I would then regret it because it would totally be a Jurassic Park situation. It really would. We'd all would. get eaten, but it would be great to see. It'd be so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> How big were the megafauna? Do you know? Uh, I think they ranged in size. It depends which one, but the I think the giant wombats were like bigger than people sized. They were massive. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one to bring back. That'd yeah. be exciting. <laughs> I if we could like ride them like mm, around yeah. the place. <laughs> Have you ever considered trying to sequence your own DNA? I'm sure I have. (laughs) You've got to be so careful when you're preparing samples because you just get your own DNA in there all the time. Um, Would you know if you had accidentally done that? Luckily, a lot of the stuff we do is very species specific. Okay. I think working in like a forensics lab would be so hard, but um, we have a lot of protocols in place so that we don't do that. Um, But yeah, who knows? Maybe it slipped through a few times. Because it it would be easy to do by accident. Yeah. With that in mind, if you could take, we'll call it a superpower, if you could take something from an animal Mm -hmm. and put it in your own DNA to give yourself a superpower, (laughs) Mm -hmm. what would you pick? Um, Maybe uh, like the nudibranchs, the sea slugs. Um, You can see them around Perth if you go snorkeling. They uh, sequester toxins from other animals that they eat and put it in their skin oh that's cool so that yeah then nothing can eat them maybe i'll do that that's very not that i'm really worried about anyone eating me (laughs) (laughs) but i think i would just do it for laughs i think that's really cool yeah which are the most challenging animals that you've had to work with to trap them um i think i helped out on a project with mountain brushtail possums in victoria yeah And they are very cute, but also um, they have very big claws. (laughs) So when you catch them, some of them are super chilled out because it's a really long um, ongoing project and they've probably been trapped like three times a year for 15 years or something Mm. like that. And so they're just like, all right, I got my apple, I'm good. (laughs) But some of them, 
the whole way back carrying them on your back in the bag you can just feel their claws digging into your back <laughs> oh, that's so stressful at least the little ones are like not so mm, bad I imagine yeah they you often get like bites on your fingers but oh. I'd prefer that than big claws in my back I think <laughs> do you ever have moments of like I don't know when you're out in just remote Australia and you're working with these animals that a lot of people don't even know exist do you ever <laughs> just have a moment of I have a really weird job yeah (laughs) I think it's more a moment of like I just have an amazing job yeah because there aren't that many jobs where you just get to see like the sunrise and set every day you get to go walk down these random creek lines that I don't think people would bother going for a walk down if they had the choice but you know that's where your species is so you'll go see these spots that yeah there's no reason for other people to go to and you just get to have this really, I guess, intricate view of a tiny little area. You know it so well and you get to see so many different animals going about their business. I think, yeah, it's probably more of a like, my job is weird, but it's awesome. <laughs> On the flip side of that, though, they're long days and that's yes. <laughs> hard physical work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How do you handle that? Oh, I think, I mean, people who do it all the time, like amazing I don't know how they do it it's really hard work but when you're doing it for a project where you know you'll be it's not forever I think I've always found it pretty easy to kind of like you know the end is in sight if it's a long day well it's not going to be forever so just try and enjoy it while it lasts um and then I guess just sometimes you have a bad day. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you're exhausted and you just yeah. need to go sit in your tent for a little while or something. Yeah. But yeah, I, re- I really enjoy that kind of physical work because on the flip side, you often spend a lot of time sitting in front of a computer or at a lab bench. So it's really nice to have that kind of balance, I think. This is a very like simple question, but when you are studying species dna Mm -hmm. like what are you doing are you at a computer (laughs) looking at a's and t's and g's and c's or like are you looking down a microscope how like what does it actually look like so most of the time now we've got these companies that you can send dna off to and they do the sequencing um but it depends on what type of sequencing you're doing so what we usually do now is we'll extract the dna um And then we send it off to a company that randomly chops it up and then puts it through a sequencer, which spits out all the A's, T's, D's and C's. Uh, And then we get certain sections of the DNA all lined up so that you've got every individual at the same spot. Mm -hmm. And you can look through that region of the genome and see whether there are differences. So you'll have a spreadsheet that tells you this individual had an A, this one had an A, but this one has a C. Mm. And so by having a big spreadsheet that's got all of the different locations in the genome where there are differences between individuals, you can start to kind of see, okay, these ones all have the same DNA, these ones have a different mutation, so they're probably from two separate genetic clusters or two populations. So yeah, it's lots of lots of ones and zeros (laughs) but yeah some people do entire sequences so they're kind of comparing all of the bases and having a look at that Um, some people compare um, the kind of more coding DNA so yeah it really depends on what your question is I guess 
When you're thinking about whether or not two individuals are in a different species, is there a rule for how different their sequences have to be to be like they're different that's they're not a just, whole kettle of yeah, fish you're getting into there I thought it might have been. <laughs> there's a whole lot of different species concepts and i guess it's gotten easier and harder with dna so it used to be based i guess more on kind of uh whether things were able to mate um, yes that sort of thing morphology so what do they look like do mm-hmm. they look different mm-hmm. um now we have dna we can actually see how similar they are we can start to try and resolve some of these things um but dna keeps getting better and better the technologies to sequence it so before we might have been basing that on one little fragment of dna from a mitochondria now we can do it based on an entire genome so even though it seems like it should be really clear cut it's always changing we're always kind of figuring out new things um and i guess at the end of the day it's a bit of an arbitrary um, mind that we draw as humans. We like to group things, but everything is kind of more distantly or closely related. It's kind of a continuum. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's why I really like population genetics because it doesn't focus so much on kind of splitting species and things like that. It's more about understanding how each component builds up yeah um so yeah population is part of a meta population is part of a species so um it's kind of fun understanding those different levels of biodiversity definitely it would change as well i imagine the conservation actions you then decide to take exactly i think that's where listing species is really important or naming species is important because it's hard to protect something if it's not named Mm. yeah we can't put it on our lists to say we need to protect this if you don't know in the first place what are some unexpected skills that you've picked up in your your research lifetime um probably being really good at like popping open a tube oh that's a good one yeah i think that one (laughs) I'm also incredibly clumsy, so and also a bit of a short attention span. <laughs> so I think I've learned a lot of ways to kind of counter that. Um, for example, if you're kind of in the lab pipetting in various liquids into different tubes and plates, I've got all of these different strategies to make sure that when I inevitably vague out and lose track of where I am, I can look at count the number of pipette tips or something and yeah, that's there's a good lots one. of little tricks. So yeah, yeah. that's probably the main one. Also very good at holding animals in bags, <laughs> which I don't think ever applies anywhere else. But It is a strangely specific skill. It is. And carrying, like you said, a possum on yeah. your back is a bit of a weird one. Exactly. What skills are required to be good at your job? Uh, I think, yeah, a very intense curiosity. Um, It's really awesome to work with people who are just really interested in how things work, how the world works, and also a passion for conservation and how Mm. we can do things better. I think, yeah, just, just being really passionate and excited about what you're doing is really important because... To be honest, there's just so many different things you can do as an ecologist. Like from day to day, I could be in the field or in the lab or in front of the computer coding or doing some random statistical analysis. And any of these things you can kind of focus on or you could branch off and do something totally different. But I think all of this stuff is really interesting when we come together and collaborate and learn from each other. So 
if you're just really interested in it, I think that's the main, the main thing. Yeah, to <laughs> yeah. keep that drive going. Exactly. Do you ever wish you get to work with a different kind of animal? I don't think so, because I think while I love the animals that I work on, it's normally the kind of work I do isn't so much driven by the species. Mm. Um, I really, I get really interested in a question and then we find the species that helps us address that question. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, there's a landscape that we really want to um, protect, you know, do better with our conservation management strategies or our fire management strategies or something. And so we can test whether our um, management is working by looking into a certain species or a certain group of species. So, yeah, I think I, think I just really like working on a big range of different animals. That's completely fair. Mm. <laughs> now, the final section, which I don't doubt you have had, you have so many of these. I was hoping to get your favourite fun fact. Mm, yeah, so I had to think it's hard to come up with just one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought since I'm working in the Pilbara at the moment, I should come up with an arid or semi-arid fact. Um, so I thought a good one was to talk about how incredible our mammal species are at adapting to arid conditions. Oh, yeah? So we've got a huge range of animals that live in Australia's arid zones, and I guess one of the main challenges for them is how do they deal with uh, not having very much water. Um, And so one species, the Spinifex hopping mouse, has the most efficient tiny kidneys What it does is it doesn't drink water because obviously freestanding water is quite hard to come by. So it gets all of the water it needs from its food, um, so seeds and things like that. And then its kidneys will recycle um, that over and over and over again until finally what it pees out is solid. Wow. (laughs) So there's no loss. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. And then they've also got these incredible big ears which help with um, heat loss. Uh, and they hop, which is a very efficient way of conserving energy. So, Who would have yes. thought? That is so cool. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. No worries. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials, as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub that is Western Australia on Wadjuk country.